So where is God in this upside-down world? We can't even define what a woman is. Several departments or several agencies were asked to define what a woman is. No response. Even though many of those agencies tout the fact that they have programs or initiatives for women. If we think this is a political issue, we are sorely wrong. This is a moral issue. This is an issue, an affront against the very creator who created male and female. Some leaders think that you parents have no right to raise your children. That should be the government's job. That's what the communists do. (laughs) They separate the kids from the parents, and then they indoctrinate them. You parents should have no say in your children's education. Quit meddling in the curriculum. Young children should be able to decide what gender they want to be or should be, no matter how God has created them. There are more names than I can count for so-called genders. How about gender Fluidicity, or fluicity, I should say. Gender fluicity. Society or media or Hollywood or government or whatever, people individually determine what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. Leaders can justify almost any sort of a lie and call it political expediency. How ironic it is that the great originator of sin in the universe is called a liar and a murderer in John 8. In fact, in Genesis 3, it was the lie that came before the murder. Governments around the world, and have been for a long time, use deceit as a very deliberate policy tool in relation to their own citizens and in relation to other nations and other governments. It's like in Daniel chapter 11, there were two kings. They were sitting at a table together, and it says this, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil regarding the kings, They speak lies to each other at the same table. (laughs) Or how about the Russians telling their soldiers that they're going on a training mission and they invade Ukraine? Then we have the murdering of untold millions of unborn babies 
and it's called, it's called women's health. How upside down can that be? You can't even define what a woman is. Ridiculous, absurd, evil. Fools think they are wise. Foolish, irrational, illogical thinking is fueled by very, very dark hearts. Impurity, dishonoring the body with, the, with like genders because it is thought to be wise and good and right and justified to exchange the truth about God for a lie. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hate, ignoring God, hating God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and so on, the scriptures go, are all declared good in certain situations and circumstances. This is not political. Political is a soft term. It softens the moral issue. It it softens the rebellion against God. This is a moral, rebellious issue. So after that litany of immorality, what do you think about the way God's running the world? Or what about God's seeming silence and all this garbage? And all this evil? Where is he? You know, many great people have struggled with that very issue. Bewildered, concerned about God's governance of the world. Habakkuk, he struggled with it. Job struggled mightily with it. David struggled with it. Many of the psalmists struggled with it. Jesus' disciples even struggled with it. Where is God? (laughs) What is God doing? Look at all this garbage. One such man was a man called Asaph. Asaph was a musician. Asaph was a poet. And he was a prophet, according to 1 Chronicles. He was appointed by David as music leader in the temple. Asaph was a man of God, and he was greatly troubled and bewildered by the sin of some of the people and the seeming silence of God. Why don't you do something, God, was basically his understanding, his thinking. So I want you to turn this morning to Psalm 73, and we're going to park there. We can divide this psalm into three sections. 
Asaph had a crisis of faith, and then he had a turning point. And then the last part was what the resolution was. What did God show Asaph in his struggle with how God governs this universe? So let's look at verse 1. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now this is almost the conclusion. This is after Asaph went through all this agony and discovered what the resolution of the problem was or the question. Then he comes back, he writes this, and he says, truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. You know, the Bible teaches us that God's work is good in Genesis 1. In Romans 12, the Bible teaches us that God's will is good. And in 1 Chronicles 16, the Bible teaches us that God himself is good. And all the evil that bombards us every day, the evil is bent on destroying your faith. It's bent on destroying your family. It's bent on destroying order in our culture, in our nation, in the nations of the world. Evil is bent on destruction, never building up. And so Asaph is seeing all this. He's seeing, and it's a particular evil here. We'll get to that. And he's witnessing all of this. And he knows that God is good. He knows that the will of God is good. He knows that God is just. And what he does is right. And he's confused in all of this. So verse 2 says this. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Asaph's lingering question was, how can God be good when the wicked seem immune from the trials of the world? And he describes this descent as a stumbling as a slipping. He was slipping in his beliefs about God. Where is God in this? How can God be just in letting all this go on? And so let's go on to verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was jealous, and he was envious of those who were rich, And those who are arrogantly rich, when you're trying to go from paycheck to paycheck, how is it that the rich seem to always get by? When there's prosperity all around me, But I don't have a part of that or not enough of that. 
And not only that, the rich are arrogant. This is Asaph's perception in his view. They're high, they're mighty, they're pompous, they're condescending. We could go on. So the psalmist is struggling with rich people who don't get sick, they don't get car accidents, they don't, they don't and he goes on, and we'll, we'll get to some of the things, and one of them is that when they die, they don't get emaciated, they die and they look like they should be alive. They don't even look like they're sick. And so he's struggling and goes headlong into this struggle with God. Now, verses 4 to 12 here, the psalmist begins to outline what he sees, or at least what he perceives to be true. He's looking at this evil, these wicked people around him, and then he establishes a list here of what he sees. So let's look at verse 4. He says, For they, these evil, prosperous people, they have no pangs until death. This word in the Hebrew for pangs means cords that are drawn tight. And the, the idea is that the wicked are dying and they're not twisting in pain. They're not hurting. They just seem to die. Obviously, obviously, this is a perception of his, that he looks when he looks around him. Their bodies are not weakened by disease. They just die looking very healthy. Verse 5, he says, verse 5, yeah, yeah, he says, well, he says their body, verse 4, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are, and they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. This, this phrase here um, for uh, trouble as others right here, they're, they're, not, they're, in, la- they're in the labor of, in the, they're not in the labor of man. They're not facing the stuff that we face. They're exempt from the common burdens that we have of everyday living. They don't have the troubles of humanity. They seem to have some special favor on them that saves them from these calamities. So where's God? The second part of that verse, verse 5, says they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. With mankind, they don't have the affliction. They're not in the same category as other people. The calamities which come so heavily on the human race, they seem to be exempt from those. They prosper, they're happy, they're favored, while many, many are struggling and hurting. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. They, they wear pride, 
like a fine, and they wear pride and clothing like, they wear pride and violence like fine clothing and like the accessories of a necklace. It, it, it just consumes who they are. They're not clothed with compassion. They're not clothed with humility. They are clothed in evil, living, and violence. Verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. The fruit of their high living does not wear them down. The fruit of their high living does not cause ill health. And as the New American Standard Bible says, the imaginations of their heart run wild. Their plans, their dreams, they just seem to always be fulfilled. Their wishes, their gratifications, their purposes in life, they're all accomplished. Verses 8 and 9, verse 8 says, They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty, they threaten, loftily they threaten oppression. The Hebrew phrase here is, The waters of a full cup are drained by them. God's, let me, let me back up. That's, that's, another, that's the next verse. Um, They scoff and they mock their threats. Their mouths spew hate against God. It seems that the world we live in has little restraint. Wild living, rebellion against God, tongues that have no limit, tongues that have no restraint. And then in Hebrew, in, in verse 9, it says, Their mouths against the heavens, their tongues stri- uh, stri- struts against the earth. They speak against God. And they speak against godly people. That's what was happening for Asaph. And then verse 10 says, Therefore his people run or turn back to them and find no fault. This This... This was a little confusing to me, this phrase, what it meant. But, but what it really means is that God's people always are coming back to this same subject. The same subject that Asaph is dealing with. Where is God? How come these people flourish? How come I'm struggling so much? And God's people are always coming back to that. And it's draining God's people. That's what Asaph is saying. It's draining us. It saps us out of everything. And we are overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed with the question of what God really knows. What does God know? Does he know about all this garbage? Verse 11 says, and they say, how can God know? Can God really know about all this stuff? Is he really omniscient? So this is how far the psalmist has fallen in his belief. He just keeps keeps going down and down and down. 
with all these questions. Verse 13 begins the turning point. Asaph did have a turning point. And he begins with verse 13, and it says this. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. His turning point isn't, a, a, isn't an all-of-a-sudden flip here to everything is good. His turning point is telling us here, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of all the innocence. What has it gained me to be godly man? <laughs> Why should I continue striving? Maybe it would be better if I lived in sin. Maybe all these things wouldn't be happening to me. If I just went out and lived like the rest of these people, maybe I'd become more prosperous. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The conflict, the warfare, it's all painful. All of this trying to lead a godly, holy life, all of which is now, now seems to be of no advantage whatsoever. You know, these thoughts are not just confined to the psalmist here. He had really fallen. He had fallen a long way. But there are a lot of people who think like this. Walking, walking or trying to walk with the Lord for a while and things get really rough. What's the use? What's the use? There was a soldier in one of my units. We used to have a, I had a Bible study with some of these soldiers. And he, he, was on, he was on fire for God. I mean, he was on fire for God. And just like everything else, he moves and I moved, and I totally lost track of him. And, I mean, 20 years later, I was retired. We were in St. Louis. I got a call from him. And I, don't, I have no idea how he found my name or number or anything. But... He proceeded to tell me about a, I'm, I think it was like at least 10 years plus, where he had just completely turned away from the Lord. Just quit, gave up. Lived a wild life. And had since come back to Christ. So these kind of thoughts are not new thoughts. Why should I try? What good is it? Verse 14, and in his turn, he's, he is turning because he's, he's confessing all this. Verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. My sufferers my sufferings, my trials. Every morning, I have this affliction. I have this suffering. 
Every day I'm rebuked, it seems like, or every day I'm punished by this disease. I never seem to have any relief from this. My lot is really different than the wicked people. They don't know anything about this stuff. They're always prosperous, always happy. Let's go to Job. Job struggled mightily here. Job 7. Job was a lot worse off than Asaph. He lost his kids. His wife told him to curse God and die. He looked terrible. And he had all these boils all over his body. It's like a leprosy almost. Totally in pain all the time. Job says in chapter 7, let's begin with verse 16. He says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. Now he's talking to God. He says, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me and not leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you? you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression, take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth, and you will seek me, but I shall not be. Let's go to verse 15 in, in uh, Psalm 73. The psalmist says, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Lord, now this is a real turning place. Lord, if I had spoken to anybody else about what I'm saying to you right now, all these, these previous verses and all this doubt, if I had told anybody else that, that would have had a horrible effect on the next generation. Now, I think we ought to, at times, tell somebody about our struggle. Somebody we trust, somebody that cares for us. But for Asaph, he just believed that if he told all this stuff that he believed right now, or questioned, that the younger people, the next generation, they are going to be filled with unbelief. And then he says in verse 17, and here's the key in this verse, Here's the turning point 
and it's on the, he's turning on the until here. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then, then I found out about what the end of the wicked would be. That all that their prosperity and all the good things that they have, all of that's going to go away forever. I finally discerned their end. And all of this makes some sense now to me. Now, the word used here for sanctuary is in the singular, meaning that Asaph did not go into the temple because there was only one temple. This is the word, he said, until I went into the sanctuaries. He's talking about here to the places where God would meet him. The places where the solution was learned. The places where God would come and present himself to Asaph. The secret places in the places that are nearest to God. The places where God most clearly manifolds himself, which are multiple places. What are those places for us? Where is God most reveal himself to us? The word? How many words do you hear in a day? Or let me ask this. What words do you hear in a day that have eternal value compared to this word that every word has eternal value. This is the place that God reveals himself. Here, in the place of prayer, God reveals himself. The truth about who he is. The truth about how he's governing this universe. He reveals to us here how he's governing the universe. He reveals to us here how he's governing all the evil that's in this world, that's in his sight, that he hates at every moment, and that he's angry at at every second. He is governing all of that evil in a way that will glorify him and honor him. He is moving all of history in a way that culminates in Revelation, the last book of eternal truth. God reveals himself and his ways here as we pray over the scriptures. That's why the psalmist says, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your word. And the wondrous things that Asaph was learning here was how God was going to deal with all this wickedness that was all around him. And it seems like God wasn't doing anything. The difficulty was not solved by mere human reasoning. Human reasoning is not bad because God gives us the ability to reason and to think. He wants us to think 
He wants us to reason. He wants us to understand things logically. But we can't understand the ways of God only by human reason or merely by human reason. It was learned only for Asaph in the presence of God. That's where the disclosures were. Jesus said to his disciples, who do these people out here say that I am? Well, that whole bunch of people, Elijah, John the Baptist, so forth. And then he said, well, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood did not tell you that. No human reason gave you that understanding. No power of logic brought that conclusion. That was only by revelation to you. And the revelation that we get is from here, that we get is from God to us about how he governs this universe. God has plans. He has purposes. And human power does not understand that in its totality. So the only solution of the difficulty for Asaph was to get near to God. I got to find God. That's where the answer is to all of this. The mystery could be solved, and it was solved for him. It says, in the end, here, he says in verse 17, then I discerned their end, or in the, I discerned their end, or in the end of all of this, God would remove all the perplexity here of my mind, and I could discern what would happen to these people. So let's go on as a resolution. What did he find out? Beginning with verse 18. Now, verses 18 to 20 have two parts. First, the, the, destru- the resolution of the destruction of the wicked. And the second one was a discovery uh, for the righteous. What does the righteous know? The destruction of the wicked and the discovery for the righteous. So let's look at the destruction of the wicked here. Verse 18. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. He learned that the wicked people are not standing on solid ground. They are building on sand. And it's all going to be washed away. Their position is not permanent. Their position is not solid. Their foothold is not secure. It is on a smooth, slippery kind of a rock. They are liable at any moment to fall into the sea of destruction. No matter how prosperous their condition is now, it is uncertain and it is dangerous. And they will fall to ruin. There is nothing permanent or stable 
about where they stand. God's destruction will be a permanent destruction and not a temporary destruction. It'll be a forever destruction. We read Revelation about the beast coming out of the abyss, about the dragon. We read about the the believers who were executed even during the tribulation. We read about those who come to Christ during that period of time, and then they are executed. And then at the end, we read about the final, the final lid that's placed on sin and Satan. He's thrown into the abyss forever. He is not destroyed out of existence. He is in with the wicked, tormented forever. So Asaph finally understands that for these wicked people, their due will come. God will have justice. Verse 19 says this. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. They're placed not in a permanent position, but they're in a condition from which they will be cast out. They'll be, they'll be swept away. They will fall violently in the end. Verse 20 says, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In... In the end, God will have his justice. Right now, their prosperity is a dream. They live in a dream world. They don't live in reality. One day they will wake to the justice of God. And God will pay no regard to their dreams. He will pay no regard to their show of outward appearance. The affairs of eternity are regulated by what is real. And what is real is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there is no one who does good. There is no one who is righteous. There is no one exempt from the tyranny of God's anger and destruction. until God does a work in their heart. To Nicodemus, he called it born again. So God comes and changes everything. So Asaph understood that these people, you don't have to be rich to be wicked. (laughs) It just happens to be the group that he was dealing with. You can be poor and evil. You can be middle class and evil. It doesn't matter. Evil is evil. We're all evil until we have a heart change. And finally, he was beginning to understand that God would have justice 
here. So what do righteous people then discover? Verse 21 says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. This is what Asaph, this is a godly man. This is what he discovered. He was like an animal towards God. Look at some of the way he talked to God. Look at the way Job talked to God. This is, like, this is, this is animal behavior. <laughs> and he said, that's what I discovered. I discovered that I was no better than some animal that's growling and biting and vicious. That's how I was to you, God. His heart and soul were grieved. He was pained. He was dissatisfied with the way he was thinking. He had become embittered and unhappy. He had cherished He had cherished his doubt. He loved it. He fed it. He failed to trust the wisdom and the justice of God in dealing with people. So to the point that he became envious of all these people. How can a good God dot, 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 right? I was pricked in my heart. The word means sharpened. This is, this is great. One word in the Hebrew means sharpened and then penetrating. <laughs> it's like you sharpen this knife and then you penetrate it deep in whatever you're cutting. He said, that's, that's how I feel right now. After coming into the presence of God and f- discovering the revelation of God and how he was going to deal with these people, I understand now who I am, and Lord, I am cut to my heart. I am cut to my soul that I would actually think this. I was a beast. He was guilty of foolishness in the very presence of God, his maker. Maybe these thoughts would have been okay for Asaph if nobody was looking. But Asaph knew that he was in the presence of God and that God was looking. And his emotions had so welled up in him that it blocked any clear thinking about God. It blocked clear thinking about how God conducts business. He was so brutish towards God that he could not think clearly about what he had learned about God. So let's go to verse 23. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. What a discovery. In the midst of his bitterness toward God, in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of his embracing this brutish behavior towards God, there was grace and care and presence. 
He wasn't going to let God go. And God wasn't going to let him go. Verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Nevertheless, God, you still permit me to come into your presence. I'm allowed to come into your presence and to have hope in your mercy towards me. Notwithstanding my low and unworthy views of you, notwithstanding my doubts about your justice, of how you govern the universe, notwithstanding my envy of the the prosperity of the wicked, notwithstanding my spirit of complaining all the time, I am not driven away from you, God. I am not banished from your presence. I am not, not cut off from your favor. You know, we should marvel at that. <laughs> we should marvel that God does just not, he just didn't slam dunk Asaph into hell. He, he didn't slam dunk Job into hell. He didn't slam dunk Habakkuk into hell with these thoughts. He didn't slam dunk the disciples like this. He realized he was brutish and he was evil when he was speaking to God and when he came into God's presence, he understood that, but he also understood that he was still held in the presence of God by God himself. What an amazing God. Let me tell you, none of the gods of the Greeks were like that. None of the gods of the Romans were ever like that. Harsh, brutal, that's what kind of gods they had. This is what kind of God we have. He says, you hold my right hand. You have not left me. You stretch out your hand to keep me. You are my protector. You are my friend. You are my savior, my salvation. I have been ungrateful and angry towards you, and you have not banished me eternally from your presence. Verse 24, he says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Lord, after all this garbage I have thought about you and all the doubts I have had about you, Yet you actually will guide me here? And you're going to counsel me in this? And one day you're actually going to receive me into your presence in eternity? (laughs) That's what he learned about God. So he didn't just learn of the outcome of the wicked. He learned of how God deals with the righteous. He learned how God deals with the born-again people who have their doubts, who wonder about things, who question sometimes. We all, we all do not understand all that God is doing. 
God himself, let's go on here, verse 25. He says, then, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Lord, there's no one in heaven, not my family, not my friends, not the angels. There is no one in heaven that's capable of being my supreme happiness except you, God. And he says, neither is there anything on this earth. There is nothing on this earth that is called a treasure that can substitute for you, God. All the other so-called treasures pale compared to you. They are feeble, they are shallow, they are colorless, nothing compared to you. My soul, God, desires you above them all. He discovered the treasure. He discovered what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the pearl, the, the, uh, pearl of great price, when he talked about the treasure hidden in the field. When he talked about he talked about the lost coins, those parables were all treasures. He says about the kingdom, but the kingdom is about the king, <laughs> and so they were all treasures about the king. And Asaph discovered here in his sanctuaries, he discovered that God was his treasure. It wasn't what anybody else had in life. It wasn't how anybody dressed in life. That didn't give a rip. It did not matter. God was his deep treasure because he discovered so much about God here regarding the wicked and how God now is treating him in this position. Verse 26. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's kind of like he's in an imagination now at this point. Um, And he's thinking, if I were in deep sickness or really bad health or in some kind of deep sorrow, if I was on my deathbed, where would I find my strength? What would be on my deathbed the object of my interest at that time? What would be the object of my love at that point? What would I rely on in that moment? And without hesitation, he says, it's God is my portion. God is my territory. God is my life. I love my family. I love my kids, he might say. I should. But I'm going into eternity by myself naked before God. God has to be my treasure.
The source of happiness he found was not wealth, not honor, it's not friends, it's not fame. It's the treasure in the field. It's the pearl of great price. It's the lost coin. It's Christ himself. Verse 27 then, we'll finish here in a minute. But behold, those who are far from you shall perish. That's what he learned. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So now he's reiterating what he's learned about the wicked. When he says here, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful. This word unfaithful in the Hebrew is is like a phrase. It's like, for everyone who goes on whoring, W-H-O-R-I-N-G, from you, God. That's how stark it is. That's that's how God God considers sin. For all those who go on whoring or are living a life in prostitution from you, God, and from your love and mercy, he understands their end now. And he understands the nature of that wickedness. He wants no part of it. He wants to walk a holy man. He wants to live a holy life. Verse 28 says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. God is my treasure. God is my refuge. And the reason I want that, he said, is because I want to tell other people about this. Don't forget the little, the words there, that. That I may tell of all your works. Perplexities, doubts. You know, they are not necessarily for a believer inconsistent with our true love and genuine confidence in God. In fact, sometimes these very doubts can be the means by which God uses to reveal himself, who he is, and how he works. So lest we think that doubts we cannot have, that's wrong for a Christian. We do have those. We do have questions, but let those questions and doubts be times of searching and examination in the presence of God over his word in prayer. You know, evil is all around us. (laughs) So where is God? Well, we know from Psalm 73 that God has a plan. He has a plan for evil. And for wicked people. He is not silent. In the midst of all of this, God is still turning hearts to Christ. 
He is still moving people in Asia, in McKinney, or wherever to come to Christ. In the midst of everything that's upside down, everything that isn't even stand to reason, (laughs) I get so aggravated. Let me back up. (laughs) God is working in all of that. Use us to bring others to Jesus Christ. We know that because Jesus said to the disciples, go into all the world and make disciples. You, you disciples, you. You go and you, you go and you make disciples. He said, I'll be with you. I have all authority in heaven and on earth, so that's your authority for making disciples, but you go. So God is at work. He has a plan. Our job is to fight against the evil. We are to fight the good fight, the Apostle Paul says. We are to speak truth to the evil. We are to not be silent. We are not to cower down. We're not to be a bunch of wusses. We are to tell the truth about evil. Sometimes we tell it in a very forceful way. Sometimes we tell it in a very quiet way. But we are to fight the good fight. The Apostle Paul calls us soldiers. And along the way of that fight, we are to be telling others and leading them to great redemption story in Christ Jesus. The bottom line is we can trust the way God's governing this world. We can trust everything we don't know about Because everything that God does is right. Every decision he makes is right. It is never wrong. It is always infused with his holiness. And we can trust him. Okay, God, this upside-down world, I don't get. Except I do get, because the hearts of men are evil. So should I expect anything less? Probably not. In fact, we can so trust God that, you know, he even knows when a sparrow plunges off a tree to the ground. Not too long ago, there was a dove sitting on our fence. Soon after that, I love hawks. This beautiful hawk came swooping in, and that dove was toast. (laughs) Well, okay. God knew that, did he not? It's no secret. God can be trusted to govern this universe and to govern our lives. Let's pray.